0: Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to episode 46 I thought I would be back talking about coffee drying, but I'm still distracted by the recent collaboration episode I did with the Adventures in Coffee podcast. Making that episode with James, Scott, and Jules has stirred up a lot within me, including some unresolved ideas that I just can't seem to shake. Today's episode will make a lot more sense if you've already heard episode 44, since I reference a lot of things from the original episode and the conversation that James and I had after that episode. Even though James and I discussed various challenges, there was still more that came up from that experience that I'm still wrestling with, and I need another episode together with you to sort it out. You heard us say that for the 30 minutes that was released, James had 7 hours of audio to cut down, not to mention all of the -the off-the-record planning meetings that we had to discuss what the episode would be like. We all felt like there was a lot of good stuff to share. I thought about just releasing the whole hour with Todd and the whole hour with Carla unedited, However, when we were recording those conversations, we knew that not everything would be used, so there was no structure, no flow, and it was really difficult to listen to those interviews as standalone pieces. So even though there was a lot of interesting material, it didn't all fit together, and it was difficult to listen to. The positive part for James was that because there was a lot that didn't fit into the narrative, it was really easy for him to be able to cut things out, all the random stuff that was clearly irrelevant. But as longtime listeners know, on this podcast, we follow tangents we go on a journey together. Because often, I don't know what the point is. Often, I don't know what the point is until it all comes out of my head and we walk through it together. The tangents are welcome here. So this is an opportunity for me to share with you those tangents that maybe are not tangents at all. This collaboration started when James reached out to me in January to collaborate on something, and we didn't release the final episode until May 31st. For months, we tossed ideas back and forth, and when we finally got down to an outline and recording, we had about eight weeks left. I usually spend a lot of time thinking and reading for new episodes, but I have the luxury that I can do that work whenever, and it doesn't rely on anyone else's schedule. In this piece, we had to coordinate six people in five different time zones. Todd in California, Carla in El Salvador, me in Colombia, James is in Berlin, and Scott and Jules are in London. That's a nine-hour difference to coordinate emails, recording times, and sending files back and forth. When James suggested the collaboration, I was eager to work with him because I had listened to his coffee history series and was familiar with his production style. I was not familiar with the Adventures in Coffee podcast and started listening to that after he reached out. One episode that jumped out at me right away was called Wine Experts Teach Us Their Secrets. This episode was also a collaboration with another podcast called Wine Blast, Wine Blast is hosted by Susie and Peter, who are a married couple and are both masters of wine. Masters of wine is not quite the same thing as a master sommelier. Most people will be more familiar with a sommelier program, but a masters of wine is similar, although not exactly the same thing. But for our purposes, you can think of them as a very related uh, certification. So the episode pitted wine and coffee professionals against each other to see if they could... Uh, understand the quality differences of these different products that they are not necessarily familiar with. So it was about wine tasting and coffee tasting. So they took the two masters of wine and gave them three levels of coffee, and the wine masters preferred the cheaper coffee, which is actually a wine-coffee comparison we can make. Often, internet articles like to say that expensive wine is for suckers because in blind tastings most people can't tell, which is both true and misleading. People like what is familiar. The average American doesn't drink $150 bottles of wine regularly. Maybe people drink expensive wines for special occasions, but it's not what the average American reaches for on a regular basis. So when they give an audience a $15 bottle of wine versus a $150 bottle of wine, the $15 bottle wine wins because it's familiar. It's what we are used to drinking. The $150 bottle has a different profile. It's unfamiliar, and therefore, when we are forced to choose in a blind test, it's generally not the preference. And then the conclusion of the authors is usually a headline like, expensive wine is for suckers, don't waste your money, it's all marketing, everyone is lying to you. This conclusion bothers me, because there is a true craft in creating luxury wines. The inputs of an expensive wine versus an inexpensive wine are very different. They require different starting materials. Different equipment and different timelines. Like you heard Todd say, he can keep his wine for two years before he sells it to make a profit. On top of the cost of the grapes, the winemaking equipment, and the oak barrels, he also needs to pay rent to store that wine for two years, and that's California rent. And while the wine ages, some of it evaporates, so two years later you have less wine to sell than when you started. Compared to an inexpensive wine, a ready to drink wine can be turned around in about four months. You can buy cheaper grapes, you don't need to age in oak, and you don't have to pay rent for a year and a half. You can also use less expensive packaging. One really simple example is when we think about closures. So a screw cap or a plastic cork can be like, I don't know, 15 cents a piece. Compared to a wine that is made for aging and closed with a natural cork closure, that cork closure can be about $1.50 per unit, so that's 10 times more expensive per unit for a more expensive closure versus a cheaper cork closure. And the cheaper closure works for the inexpensive wine because it doesn't need to protect the wine for a long time. Because if you're at the grocery store buying a $10 or a $15 bottle of wine, you're probably going to drink that within a few days, if not that very same night. But if you're buying one of Todd's bottles that took two years to make, you might be buying it to save for a few years. That cork closure needs to work hard to protect the wine for years, not weeks or days. And these wines taste different. Most people are not trained to taste these differences. We can taste a wine and depending on its tannin structure, have a good idea if the wine is ready to drink or something that can be stored for 10 or 25 years. These wines are fundamentally different, and judging their value on preference is, well, it's not entirely incorrect, but it's very limited. Very few people exclusively drink high-end wine or specialty coffee. Unless you are trained, you will most likely like the cheaper option in coffee and wine. We are a selective audience here, but even us, of the specialty crowd, how many of us drink ultra-specialty coffee? And out of that, how many of us drink only Specialty coffee. In the last episode, I told you about my trip in June to visit Felipe at FAF in Brazil. While at FAF, I met Erico, a photographer who was capturing coffee farm life. Erico is very into specialty coffee. I was surprised when during one of our mornings together, he busted out a comandante grinder. This piece of coffee equipment is not for the faint of heart. This is a serious piece of German engineering, and it cost about $400. You guys... This is a hand grinder. You pay $400 and you still have to do all of the work yourself. And that's just for the grinder. You still need to have a gooseneck kettle and a digital scale and a brewer and, oh yeah, nice coffee. Nick and I looked into this grinder because we had a very nice electric grinder. It's quick, quiet, and consistent, but lightning struck our house and fried the circuit board. So we had to order a new one from the States, and when I went to visit my mom in Guatemala in January of this year, she brought me the replacement part. Nick fixed the grinder and we were back in business. Then, five months later, lightning struck the house again, and once again, we ruined the circuit board. So Nick and I decided to not test fate a third time and that we needed a good hand grinder as our only coffee grinder. We were very tempted by the comandante, but Nick and I were just not at a point where it makes sense, so he found a less expensive option. We now exclusively hand grind our coffee with the espresso, and it's been working well for us for several weeks. Anyway, back to Erico, so him having the comandante grinder showed me that his commitment to having good coffee is high, even when he is away from home. At the end of my time on the farm, Erico and I rode the five hours together back to Sao Paulo. During a gas station stop, we hopped off to use a bathroom, and when I came out of the lady's side, I saw he had bought a cup of coffee. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast may remember episode 3, where I talk about the best cup of coffee I have ever had. And even though I drank that coffee in a hotel lobby in Rwanda, the coffee was available for purchase in the gas station across the street from the hotel. So buying coffee at a gas station, for me, is no longer a marker of poor quality. Having grown up in the United States, I know that gas stations are not the place to look for good quality food or beverage. In America, gas station dining is for desperate souls whose journey is too long for them to wait for a better option. However, I did have another instance in 2015 which started to crack this gas station food paradigm. In preparation for a trip to Japan, I asked a Japanese friend for advice about where to eat. She kind of dismissed my question and said, "Uh yeah, everywhere the food is great. Yeah, don't worry about it." And I was like, "Yeah, of course it's Japan. Like I know everything's going to be amazing, but is there anything that I should avoid?" And then I gave the example of how in the United States you can buy sushi at a grocery store or a gas station. And just because you can, doesn't mean you should. I was exaggerating to make a point. Obviously, I wasn't going to go to Japan and have sushi from a gas station. And quickly, she said, oh no, you must try it. You must have the sushi from the (laughs) 7-Eleven. I was like, what in the world? Dear international listeners, do you have 7-Eleven stores? In the United States, they are convenience stores that sell soda, chips, cookies, things that are hard to identify as food. And yet, my Japanese friend was telling me that I had to try the sushi at the 7-Eleven gas station. I did. I went to Japan with my brother. I am an accidental foodie because I started my career in Napa, a culinary mecca. You can't live in Napa and work in the wine industry and not be a foodie. It's not a choice. It's just something that eventually happens to everyone who does that and lives there. My brother, by contrast, is a natural-born foodie. He is a mathematician, so he has spent most of his life inside university halls and deep in textbooks. Going to nice restaurants is not part of his job, and yet he is also a foodie, and he came by it honestly. He just naturally gravitates towards food adventures. My brother is a really cool person, someone who I would want to be friends with even if I wasn't related to him. I do have to mention, though, that it pains me that he doesn't drink coffee. Like, ever. At all. Not even a little bit. Caffeine affects him strongly, and he completely stays away from it. So one of my biggest regrets in life is that I cannot share my work with my foodie brother. Oh well, where was I? Uh, Japan, right, okay. So in 2015, my brother and I went to Japan. We were the kind of people who woke up at 4am to get stuffed into a Tokyo train to go to the Sujiki market to see the tuna auction and eat sushi. We traveled a whole day on a bullet train to have Kobe beef in Kobe. We ate shabu-shabu and drank cocktails at the Park Hyatt, the hotel from the movie Lost in Translation with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. We had ramen in Tokyo and okonomiyaki in Osaka. We ate at amazing, well-known places and random holes in the wall. We ate from street carts that had takoyaki and yakitori. And we also got 7-Eleven gas station sushi. And it was delicious. Totally worth it. So if you're in the United States, please don't eat at gas stations. But if you travel to Japan or Rwanda or Brazil, enjoy gas station food with confidence. Okay, so back to the Brazilian gas station with Erico. I've mentioned this is my third time in Brazil, and each time we've stopped at a gas station to eat, and the food has been excellent. The gas stations are like giant rest stations and have full restaurants in them. But this last time, we were not stopping to eat. Uh, We were kind of in a hurry and we just had to get to the airport. So Erico. The man who cares so much about specialty coffee that he travels with a comandante grinder, this man is holding a styrofoam cup with steaming black coffee. He didn't even have to get close to me for me to smell the stench of burnt rubber tar coming from his cup. And you guys, let me remind you, we were at a gas station with giant semi-trucks literally burning their rubber tires and filling up with gasoline. And still, all of that happening in the background didn't smell as bad as what was going on inside his cup of coffee. It was truly, truly nasty. Eriko, I exclaimed, what are you doing? That smells terrible. And then he scrunched up his face like he was in pain. And he goes, yeah, it tastes terrible too. And then he just took another sip and eventually drank the whole cup. As I watched him, I felt my brain twisting. Like, how can he care so much about coffee and also not care? Like, can you guys do that? I really can't anymore. I can't drink bad coffee. I I don't know if it's just, uh, I'm maybe not as caffeine sensitive, but if there's bad coffee, I really, really don't need to drink it. Anyway, we are a particular audience here. We drink specialty coffee. But how many of us drink only specialty coffee? I want you to ask yourselves, how many of you have paid more than $10 for a single cup of coffee? How many of you have paid more than $18 for a bag of roasted coffee? And even if you have, is that the coffee you drink regularly? I remember being in the Bay Area in 2016 when Blue Bottle started selling the Monk of Mocha Yemeni coffee for $17 a cup. I remember the publicity this got like it was a stunt. The San Francisco Chronicle had this headline that said, The $20 cup of coffee is here! with like three exclamation points. In 2016, Blue Bottle was serving the most expensive coffee in the Bay Area. I have to admit, I ordered that coffee at the Blue Bottle store in Oakland, but only once. It was not my regular coffee. When you ordered that coffee, it was an experience. It was brewed at the table in beautiful glassware, and it came with this little sesame seed cookie that Mokhtar said was a family recipe. The beverage also came with a beautiful photo booklet of where the coffee came from. It was a nice thing to do on an outing to a coffee shop. Having lived in San Francisco, I have often paid $17 for a craft cocktail. $17 for a beverage experience is not unheard of. At Opus One, where I worked, a single glass of wine was $50. That's one glass. And this was in 2013 dollars, almost a decade ago. I have no idea what the cost of a glass is now, especially with the inflation rates in the U.S. But the point is, this is not most people's wine or coffee experience. So when they are presented with a very expensive coffee, liking it is not immediate or obvious. I think many people think that if something is truly good, absolutely good, that anyone with a mouth and some common sense should be able to make the right choice. And I'm putting air quotes around right choice. Some of these things we have to learn to like, and I don't think that's an indicator that they are not truly good. To call something an acquired taste is usually an insult. But I believe an acquired taste is not an insult as much as a marker of experience, an indicator of additional information. You have acquired a taste for something, It means you have more information or more experience than someone who doesn't like that same thing. More information can give us more enjoyment. Acquiring more information allows us to acquire a taste, a preference for something. The Adventures in Coffee collaboration episode reminded me of something else that I found to be true of my wine experience. Winemakers, the arbiters of taste, who are sensory trained, who spend all their time analyzing aroma and mouthfeel and texture, We who are trained to taste a wine and not just evaluate how it tastes now, but how it will age and evolve over the next 5 to 25 years. We who are trained to taste the grape skin tannins and describe their texture as silky or sticky or flannel or papery. We, with the highly trained palates, we winemakers generally drink really terrible coffee. Because most people don't get to drink the kind of coffee that we who listen to this podcast are used to drinking so anyway back to that episode spoiler alert the two masters of wine on the episode who have competition winning palettes they preferred the cheap coffee the supermarket coffee to the I think what did they give them they gave them a like one cup of excellence winner that was 30 pounds for a couple of grams I don't know it was a very delicious coffee that I would love to taste and clearly as a competition winner was uh, a standout coffee and yet these wine masters preferred the $2 a pound supermarket coffee. And again, this should be shocking to no one because the best restaurants in Napa, where each carrot and parsnip is grown with the utmost care in a raised bed 10 feet from the kitchen, where each ingredient is obsessed over, where a dinner could run $500 to $1,000 per person, in those places, coffee is often an afterthought. After you have this incredible, amazing meal, and say you perhaps want a cup of coffee, if you order something from the menu, it's usually very limited. They generally only have espresso. And that espresso is usually made by a busy waiter who is just like running around trying to get all of their tables, getting all of their orders down. Um, I guess once or twice I've been to a place where they bring up French press to the table if they're trying to get like really fancy. And if you try, if you've ever tried to ask any questions about the coffee, you will absolutely get blank stares. But if you ask about the cheese, you will get a 12-minute lecture on how the cheese was made. They can tell you about the different breeds of cows in France and how a Montébelliard is different from a sailor's cow or a French brown. They might tell you about the microclimates that are home to a specific lactic bacteria. Or they'll tell you how this cheese is made with Lactococcus starter or a lactobacillus. A server might be able to tell you more about the origins of the milk you're putting in your coffee than the coffee itself. But this is not their fault. I think it's mostly our fault. Us, the coffee people. I think we are failing in this respect. For example, I was in a specialty coffee shop, not a restaurant, a specialty coffee shop, and the shop had two different coffees available for a pour-over. So Nick and I decided to order both of them. The barista brought them to the table, and I could smell intense fruitiness coming from the first one. So as she was putting it down and pouring it, I asked if it was a natural. And she said, oh yeah, there's no chemicals in there and turned and walked away before I could ask a follow-up question. I believe she thought I was asking if the coffee was natural, like organic, not asking about the processing, a natural versus a washed process. I know some of you will say, well, clearly, Lucy is going to the wrong coffee shops. But you guys, I go to so many. I go to so many in many different cities and countries, and the experience is surprisingly similar. How can we expect a Napa restaurant to talk about coffee like they talk about cheese if when I walk into a specialty coffee shop, we don't even talk about coffee like that? After listening to the collaboration episode with the Masters of Wine, I was reminded of something else we in the coffee industry are guilty of, that many consumers like this wine and coffee comparison, and instead of challenging it, we in the coffee industry, we are guilty of perpetuating it because it's easy, low-hanging fruit, pun intended. The Adventures in Coffee episode with the Masters of Wine was entertaining and good fun, and yet it left me disturbed. I was disturbed by all the things left unsaid. I was disturbed by all of the things we assume by making these wine and coffee comparisons. So when I got the invite from James to do a similar collaboration episode, I jumped at the chance. I wanted to make another wine and coffee comparison episode, but from the other side. That first wine episode talked to masters of wine, who are not winemakers. They are not production people. I think they would be more aptly compared to champion baristas. It was still focusing on the consuming side. Episodes like that help contribute to the narrative that specialty coffee and premium wine are things that should be compared. And longtime listeners of this podcast know that I try my best to show how flimsy that connection is, how dangerous it is. But with you guys, I'm preaching to the choir. Many are coffee producers. Many of you know how different the circumstances are. But many coffee consumers and even coffee enthusiasts don't know. This was an opportunity to speak to a totally different audience and make a different kind of episode. I wanted to make an episode breaking down the comparison from production. Because, and it pains me to say this, from the consumer experience, it really might be similar. Some coffee and wine comparisons are fair. But the problem is that there is a permeable boundary in coffee, and producers can feel a lot of pressure from coffee buyers, something that just doesn't happen in winemaking. A wine buyer, a wine shop owner, would never go to a winemaker and suggest she make her wine in any different way. It's absurd. Winemakers are not open to suggestions from their buyers. But coffee buyers often ask producers to make coffee in a different way. Hey, I know you only make naturals, but you should really be doing washed coffees. Oh, you ferment in plastic bags? Hmm, you should probably get a proper stainless steel tank. Hey, you make washed coffees? All right, that's cool, but you should really be doing an anaerobic fermentation. Oh, do you already do anaerobic fermentation? Super cool. Oh, but it's only 24 hours? Oh, you should try doing it for 500 hours. Oh, you machine dry? Well, you should be using the sun, it's more natural. Oh, you already patio dry in the sun? Well, you should make sure that you're using raised beds. It's much cleaner. Drying coffee on the floor is dirty. Oh, you have raised beds in the sun? Well, you should be doing shade drying because it's much more gentle. Hey, you grow castillo? That's cool, but you really should be growing geisha or eugenoides. Oh, by the way, naturals are cool again. Don't do washed anymore. You should be making naturals. And make sure they're carbonic macerated naturals. And on and on and on. Can you imagine the whiplash a producer feels trying to navigate how they should make their specialty coffee? Listening to the chorus of voices with well meaning and helpful suggestions? Again, helpful is in air quotes. Even Carla mentioned this in the extended audio. When her family was trying to transition into specialty coffee, she got well meaning suggestions from buyers as to what her price should be. Not only do producers get many well meaning suggestions about how to make their coffee, but buyers also tell them how much they should be charging. This is a very unique circumstance that has no correlation with the wine industry. In the Adventures in Coffee episode, uh, maybe in the extended part, Todd described why they chose to set the price at $90 per bottle and not $150 per bottle. First, the winemakers cover their cost of production, and then they do market research to see what they can charge for their wine. Then, the market reacts. And perhaps the winemaker adjusts the price or changes their overhead or holds steady. But the point is, it's always a choice. And they're very proactive about it. However, many coffee producers don't make it this far. Few have access to know what other producers are getting for their coffees. Todd can walk into a wine shop and in five minutes see all of his competition and what they are charging. It's much more difficult for coffee producers to access the same kind of information. A buyer telling them what they should charge for their coffee is the closest many get to market information. Carla said she believed the people who gave her pricing advice meant well, that they were not trying to screw her over, that they thought $1 per pound was a reasonable suggestion for what her coffee should be worth. But I wonder if meaning well is enough to absolve poor advice. How do we judge advice? By the intention or the result? I think this topic deserves more exploration, but it'll have to be another time. Let's get back to why the wine and coffee comparison can be so damaging. When we make consumer comparisons about wine and coffee, it can bleed over to production in coffee in a dangerous way. In wine, the boundary is solid. There is a 10-foot-thick stone wall between the wine buyer and the winemaker. A wine buyer's influence on processing is non-existent. But with coffee, the boundary is tissue-paper-thin, if it even exists at all. Actually, I don't even like this analogy, because having a thick-strong boundary implies that the average wine consumer would have to try really, really hard to get to the winemakers. But that's not accurate. There is no boundary needed because it's an absurd proposition. Wine buyers buy wine because they already like how it tastes, not to build a relationship that will eventually allow them to exert influence on the processing. Because the winery already has a strong brand to justify the wine and its price. And because winemakers are the keepers of the knowledge of wine production. The winemaker will always have more knowledge about winemaking than a wine buyer. In coffee it's often flipped. The coffee buyer has more resources and access to the latest research or coffee science. So what is unheard of in wine is very common in coffee industry. Unfortunately, coffee buyers have well-meaning suggestions and advice for coffee producers because often they do know more. They fly to coffee conferences around the world and hear research. They attend expensive workshops. They have access to expensive and complicated equipment. The bulk of the knowledge resides with the buyers. But what I've seen in my years in this industry is that instead of working towards access equality, letting producers learn and make their own informed decisions, we buyers often give well-meaning advice and pat ourselves on the back for providing the gift of information. We are so useful. Producers should be grateful that they have buyers like us. So I came into the planning conversation with James and Jules and Scott wanting to address this problem. And very quickly, it was clear, I first had to convince these coffee people that there even was a problem. When we were planning what the episode would be, I realized just how much I took for granted. When we were talking about trendy processing techniques, I got the impression Jules and Scott were more thinking of it as a nuisance for customers, pretentious, confusing, You might remember where they were laughing at the language of the wine label at the very beginning of the episode where they're describing the the marine soils. It can sound really ridiculous. And I was like, yeah, that's a problem. But there's a deeper problem. It's not just silly and annoying marketing. There's a real harm that's being done to real people with real consequences. We are inadvertently contributing to the oppression of the people we say we want to honor. Jules had never thought about the other side of what these trendy processing techniques were costing producers. When she said she didn't understand them, it was strictly from a consumer point of view. It had not occurred to her that producers were often not in financial situations to oblige these weird processing trends. Again, this is where the wine and coffee comparison continues to be problematic. Because we don't think of winemakers as people with few resources winemakers have all the toys. You heard Todd say that you need half a million dollars just to get through fermentation. He didn't even mention the equipment you needed to bottle the wine. So you'd need several millions of infrastructure and equipment just to make very mediocre wine. And so internally, when we were, you know, crafting the episode and making these uh, comparisons, comparing, contrasts, what it takes to make wine and what it takes to make coffee, you hear Todd describing this incredibly advanced technological, like, machine for winemaking and then contrasting that with Carla talking about you know a patio and a wooden rake and some very very rustic very simple equipment and it makes coffee seem kind of lame it makes coffee seem uh like it's not living up to the standard and it prompted this comment about you know winemaking being like formula one racing and coffee being like go-karts and it's, it was this, you know, internal comment that, that we were just it sort of gave this impression when you put these two things side by side that made winemakers seem like they're zooming by at 300 kilometers per hour and coffee is on like this rickety homemade wooden go kart which is kind of a tempting analogy on the surface, but it's really unfair to coffee. The problem with this analogy is that in a way it works. The money involved in winemaking is like the money in Formula One. And the money in coffee is like the money in go-karts. The operating budget and marketing for wine and coffee are worlds apart. The problem I have with this analogy, though, is that it's aspirational. All go-kart drivers want to be Formula One drivers. I think all Formula One drivers start out as go-kart drivers. The goal is to move out of racing go-karts and to race at the top of your field. And this is the lesson most coffee professionals take from wine. That coffee should aspire to be like wine that coffee should aspire to have higher budgets and go faster and win podiums. And you might be thinking, well, that sounds nice. What's so wrong with being aspirational? There's nothing wrong with being aspirational. But it reminds me of the old analogy of climbing the career ladder, but feeling dissatisfied because you realize the ladder you've been climbing has been leaning against the wrong building. I saw this a lot when I was at university. So many of my classmates were 15 or 20 years older than me because they had been climbing the wrong career ladder. They turned out to be very successful, but very dissatisfied bankers or lawyers or medical school students. And it wasn't until their 30s or 40s that they climbed back down from their ladder and propped it up against a better fit for them. Which, for many, turned out to be winemaking. I don't have a problem with being aspirational or improving. I just want us in the coffee industry to not make the mistake of heading for years in the wrong direction and climbing the wrong ladder. The wine direction is a wrong direction because it leads to natural comparisons like Formula One and go-kart. This is the wrong sports analogy, and it's counterproductive for coffee's future. I bring this up here today on this episode because it was heavily talked about in the planning of the Adventures in Coffee episode, and it was eventually cut because there was no time to include it. But like I said, the analogy bothered me, and it hasn't left me all these months later. So I call this next section A Tale of Two Williams let's look at formula one first formula one is the highest class of international racing it has been one of the premier forms of racing around the world since its inaugural season in 1950 this is an expensive sport because participants need to have their own car most racers begin practicing on go-karts from a very young age it is evident that this sport requires a minimum investment of millions of dollars if you want to start practicing as a kid money is everything More money clearly means more success. George Russell started karting when he was 7 years old. Today, he is 24 and a Formula 1 driver. There are only 20 Formula 1 drivers in the whole world. Russell is clearly a great driver to be in the top 20 of the world at such a young age. But at Williams Racing, his racing position was 18 out of 20 in driver standings. It wasn't until this year, 2022, when Mercedes picked him up and he's currently 4 out of 20. Same driver, but different car, and different budget. Williams Racing annual budget is about $80 million versus Mercedes annual budget, which is $450 million. There is a strong, almost direct correlation to budget and winning. You can put the best driver in the world in a low-budget car, but his skill can't outweigh the limitations of the machine. Formula One requires a lot of money, and winemaking requires a lot of money bad equipment is a huge hindrance to wine quality. When we visit a winery, it feels like a Formula One garage. When we visit many coffee mills, it feels like a go-karting garage. It's tempting to think, oh my god, we need to upgrade the equipment and improve the quality that will lead to better coffee prices and that will save the coffee industry. But in my experience, bad equipment is less of a hindrance to coffee quality. Coffee is a less technical product. It requires less financial input. One can still achieve great results with very modest tools and budgets. A coffee made by drying cherries on the ground, raked with nothing more technical than a wooden stick, can still win competitions. The problem with the Formula One and go kart analogy of coffee and wine is that I see too many coffee producers aspiring to be like wine, buying the stainless steel tanks and aging in barrels. I see a disproportionate amount of money being spent on equipment, on the machines, on the toys, and with pretty average results. I think a more appropriate analogy is to maintain that winemaking is like Formula One racing, and making coffee is like playing tennis. Disclaimer, I watch a lot of Formula One. Like, all of it. But the extent of my tennis education is the King Richard movie, the documentary about Venus and Serena Williams. But hear me out. And so, enter the second Williams in this tale of two Williams. Coffee and wine are beverages, like Formula One and tennis are both sports, but they require very different things. From the documentary, I learned that with very little money, the Williams family accomplished extraordinary things. These young girls became world-class athletes with talent, hard work, and their equipment was fundamentally a racket and some sneakers. Yes, they have millions of dollars now, but it was not required to get started in the sport. It was not required for their talent. Coffee has nowhere near the facilities that wine has. But coffee is not lesser than for not having all the toys. It doesn't need all the bells and whistles. Okay, so hopefully I've convinced you that coffee aspiring to be like wine is unnecessary and unhelpful at best and harmful at worst. We shouldn't compare a tennis pro to a Formula One driver, just like we shouldn't compare coffee makers to winemakers because it's misleading. It can allow coffee enthusiasts to take for granted that producers are experts in the coffee processing, just like winemakers are experts at winemaking. Unfortunately, in coffee production, there is not a deep history of how to process. Most producers just follow what the generation before them did. The crazy stuff you see on the labels now— The carbonic maceration, koji process, triple lactic, hydro honey, frozen cherry stuff, that's all still being developed. I think that a lot of people that are learning about coffee processing come across these terms and they think they have discovered a new world. Like they have discovered an ancient tablet with hieroglyphs and they are eager to decipher the meaning. Instead, the reality is that there are not ancient practices or well-thought-out methods. This is not a secret that you've discovered. Most of these methods, they're, they're being written as quickly as we can speak them. So instead of thinking of them as ancient markings, it's more like communicating with emojis, something completely of this time that is evolving in real time. I often hear from producers who ask me what they should do when a client is asking them for an anaerobic coffee. And I also hear from buyers and roasters who ask me what producers mean when they receive a coffee labeled with anaerobic process. Often, neither side is really sure what they're asking for or what they're making. It's kind of like if a friend of yours texts you like the emoji with like the jazz hands and then you ask me what it means. I don't know. Maybe they're dizzy with excitement. Maybe they're drunk. I don't know them and I don't know you and I don't know what that symbol means between the two of you. When, as an industry, we coffee people compare coffee and wine for consumers, we are often not accomplishing what we hope to accomplish, which is to elevate coffee. I mean, that's really the message that I hear from everybody else. It's all this well-meaning intention to elevate coffee, to make a coffee more special, more important, more valued. We may not do it explicitly, but at least at a subconscious level, we don't realize that we are giving the wrong message. Because when we do this, it opens the possibility for consumers to think, oh, I get it, coffee producers must be like winemakers or brewmasters. Winemakers turn grapes into a beverage we love, and coffee producers turn cherries into a beverage we love too. And branding-wise, wine is doing much better than coffee, so we think we are honoring coffee by comparing it to wine. But wine and beer don't have the colonial imperial history of coffee. Enslavement, relocation of indigenous people, massive deforestation, pollution of waterways, and destruction of wildlife habitats. The wine industry's history isn't perfect, but it's nowhere near as ugly as coffee's history was and in some places continues to be. So when we use wine language and wine analogies to talk about coffee, when we overlay this model on coffee, it's an erasure of coffee's true identity. To make progress, we don't need to look at coffee through a pretty Instagram filter. We need to see it clearly, warts and all. We think we are elevating coffee. We think we are honoring it by giving it wine status. But really, we are contributing to the gaslighting of many cultures that have been forced to grow a crop they are not familiar with that is not native to their country. And now we continue the pattern by asking for foreign or weird processing methods that producers are unfamiliar with. When we, as a coffee industry, try to reinforce the image of coffee and wine, we continue to impose our outsider ideals and overlook real problems of injustice and oppression. This is why I wrote a whole episode about why we shouldn't say the Q-grader is like the wine sommelier. This is why I wrote three episodes about not adopting wine's theory of terroir onto coffee. This is why I made an episode to discourage the use of wine tanks to ferment coffee and how backwards it is to use techniques like carbonic maceration for coffee. This is why I hate when my coffee comes served to me in a wine glass. At its very best, it's dumb and impractical, and at its worst, it's gaslighting. We are not helping coffee producers when we use language and talk like this. And the worst part—oh, you guys, I almost forgot about this— the worst part is that in the few places where we can treat coffee producers like winemakers, where it would be helpful, we actually don't. Remember episode 39 about adulterated coffees? In winemaking, winemakers are freely able to add sugar to the grapes in capitalization and dosage in champagne. And they are able to add acid to grapes to adjust the pH. Winemakers add these things to the fermentation and they don't have to tell anyone. It's not on any label. There are no questions. Consumers trust winemakers to know what to add to their tanks. They are left alone in their processing. But for coffee, Some are ready to come out with pitchforks and torches and call coffee with sugar or acid additions fake coffee, not real coffee, to force it to be labeled differently and to not allow it to participate in competitions. This is really disappointing to me. Like, if you're going to use the wine analogy, at least pick a lane. There is nothing innovative about treating coffee like wine. We are mostly helping ourselves by distracting our own discomfort with shiny, prestigious winemaking, while the reality is that our efforts to self-soothe help keep existing oppressive structures in place. That's what I wanted to talk to about the Adventures in Coffee audience. But I couldn't do it in a fun, pithy way, because it's not fun. And I believe that if we keep promoting the fun parts of coffee, you know, the latte art, the brewing gear, the cool-sounding processing, then we can keep calling ourselves coffee lovers, coffee enthusiasts, and never really care about coffee itself or what it costs the planet and the people that grow it we can keep saying we love coffee we need coffee we can have our pillows and mugs with cute coffee sayings like i cannot espresso how much you bean to me and yet never lift a finger to make sure the thing you love keeps existing is this too harsh is it taking coffee too seriously well i don't think we take it seriously enough something that blows me away about this audience is that i don't make fun episodes I was telling Scott and Jules that I was having a hard time fitting into their podcast structure because their episodes are short and fun and highly entertaining. My episodes are the opposite. We talk about really unfun topics, and if they are entertaining, they are accidentally entertaining. And yet you guys keep listening. And this podcast even won a spreadsheet, which is an industry award for podcasts, because you guys voted for it. You are the ones who do lift a finger to make sure the things you enjoy keep existing. So it's you guys that give me hope when I find myself having these dark thoughts or writing these episodes and feeling the weight of all of the stuff that's broken. It gives me hope that there are people like you listening now who are able to at the very least look at this stuff, who don't just want to be entertained. It's a small group of us, but we are here, not just to be distracted, but to reflect on our role in this system. Because a problem isn't out there, it's inside us. We are all contributing to the problem. We as a coffee industry have a lot of issues, and I want to know how I'm messing up so that I can do better. And that's all I have for you today. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of another episode together. This feels like one of the more random episodes, and I appreciate you guys getting through it with me. I hope you see wine or coffee a little differently now, and that learning more about each beverage helps you appreciate both a little more. Do you disagree? Do you think wine is a helpful comparison for coffee? Do you think tennis is a bad analogy for coffee? Have you had good food at an American gas station? Or do you live in a country where gas station food and beverage is also good? I want to know. Hop over to patreon.com slash making coffee to support the show and let me know your thoughts. While you're there, you can join our live discussions and hangouts. It's kind of like a podcast after the podcast. The patrons make it possible for me to carve out time out of my week to make these episodes and to have them available for free to everyone else. If you enjoy listening and get value out of these episodes, please share with a friend who loves coffee or wine. And for episode updates, consider subscribing to my free and infrequent newsletter at lucia.coffee. Lucia is L-U-X-I-A. Thanks for listening, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.